Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me, and peering closer through the rusted spokes of the gate, I saw a sign that said, You're listening to KSKQ 89.5 FM, Ashland, Oregon, and KSKQ Translator, K231CW. 94.1 FM, Medford, Oregon. Also streaming at www.kskq.org. And then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers, and I passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The hallways twisted and turned as they had always done. As I made my way into the studio, I walked up to the console, leaned into the microphone, and said, You're listening to Dream Infringement. Dream Infringement is three socially distanced best friends who like to tell stories and play songs based on a weekly theme. This week's theme has nothing to do with the opening monologue from Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. However, if you're looking for a intriguing, slightly creepy, gothic novel, look no further. I did try my best to channel Joan Fontaine. Uh, it's iffy. It's iffy, <laughs> at best. But anyway, on to the actual theme. This is Jennifer, and for today's show, I have been left to my own devices. So you know what that means! No, nobody knows what that means. I have no idea. We're going to find that out together. (laughs) So recently, I was organizing old photos and boxes of miscellaneous nostalgia, and I came across short stories that I wrote when I was about 19 and I'm going to share those with you and you can be glad that you were spared from my poetic attempts at 19 which though regarded highly by Vogon literary critics humans not so much yes So when I was 19, I went through a big phase of writing short stories. This one is entitled Snowball. Snowball was, by a rule, a very optimistic person. He awoke his usual 27 times a day with only one real joy in life. He loved to run on his hamster wheel. Maybe in the back of his head, Snowball knew that he could run as fast as his tiny paws could hurdle his fluffy, rotund body, that eventually he would slow his pace, and the little hamster wheel would gently creak till it was still, and he would be in his same little plastic container. With the elaborate, brightly colored tunnels stretching over and above his head, aside, Snowball was into some money. He didn't know they were brightly colored, as hamsters are colorblind. The same red cedar shaving covered floor with the same leaky water bottle. But still, there was the instinct 
the call from the wild that if he ran and ran with all his might he could be more deserving of achieving that great big goal that great big something that he could never place his nose on and every waking moment seldom as they were and far in between he ran till he was caught up in his own speed and flung round and round in his own dizzying personal roller coaster till he caught his breath and his equilibrium and began his freedom run again. The story came just from my own observations of watching hamsters run and run and I was like this seems so futile why do you keep doing this? And I was trying to think about it from a hamster's perspective. <laughs> like, I'm a hamster that keeps doing this. This is my story, and uh, hence this story uh, came out of it. Growing up, I never personally owned a hamster. I just had a pet rat. I think they might be a little bit different. So I decided to fact check my story about hamsters because I don't know what I if I wrote what I wrote was accurate. So they're nocturnal. They sleep mostly during the day. And so the waking up 27 times a day, I think, was pretty inaccurate. Um, this is a hamster will sleep between six and eight hours per day, the majority of sleeping hours happening during the daylight. Hamsters run at about three to six miles per hour. They tend to run so much because it is both instinct and high energy. The average hamster runs about 5.5 miles in a night. They can cover more distance, but that's the average. And that's for a pet hamster. They don't know about wild hamsters. Oh boy, that's a lot. I mean, that hamster is working out way more than, than I do in a day. And yet it still has the body of a hamster. Genetics at play. Two song choices came to mind, either Rat in a Cage by the Smashing Pumpkins or Round and Round by Tevin Campbell, and to be honest, I'm feeling the Tev Tevin Campbell one a little more, even though I was probably listening to the other one when I was 19. But Tevin Campbell, round and round, like a hamster wheel, you know, you get it, you feel me? Yeah. Okay, we are on to short story number two. This one is called The Virgin. It was at the first bold wandering streak of sunrise over the dry, brittle, and unforgiving land that the maidservants appeared. She hadn't slept well that night. Why be so nervous? They uh, sacrifice virgins every year. <laughs> So this year it just happens to be me, <laughs> she thought to herself as the maidservants anointed her with jewels and perfumed oils. She pretty much wished she could eat breakfast. The midwife, champion camel milker, and least-toothed, though highly esteemed eldest of the elder women, entered the tent and wandered around mumbling and picking things up and putting them right down again, 
and when she thought no one was looking, picked them back up and put them into the roomy pockets of her robe. The thought being that since camel milking just really paid so little anyway, this was one of the perks. I mean, the girl wasn't going to need to use them later. Really, it was her sun god given duty to do these finishing touches, which was basically talking the sacrificial virgin out of any eloping plans and any need to eat breakfast. She mumbled some words under her breath. She had forgotten the ritual chant a long time ago, but she found that if she just, you know, mumbled, no one noticed, so she did that instead. The girl was thinking dejectedly, I finally, I finally get a tent of my own, and now one of my eleven sisters will inherit it. Figures. As they escorted her out into the morning sun, she was greeted by the tribe, who had gathered around the tent, waiting for her to emerge. The tribe then formed a long procession, carefully making sure that she walked ahead, lest some early morning god get angry and exercise his wrath on the first person who happened to walk around the bend. They walked to the tree on the top of the only hill. It was a large tree. The chains on the tree were also quite large. Some women of the tribe wept and threw themselves at her feet. But then before she knew it, everyone had left. And people had decided that the usual displays of grief should be cut down because the crop virgins that year were slim pickings. I mean, last year's sacrificial virgin, she was really quite pretty, very talented. She made a mean camel milk quiche, and it had rained that year too. Uh, this one though, yeah, they weren't so sure about. So they figured they would all just run like scared chickens because if the gods got angry, no one really wanted to be around you were apt to get boils or fungus in places you did not want fungus. No one can really understand how boring it is being left tied to a tree waiting for the gods to come, unless they happen to be the sacrificial virgin of years past, or, well, they hang around the DMV often. Hour number one, the gods still hadn't come. She was really hungry now. And a little insulted. I mean, she wasn't that bad. I mean, maybe she could have expected that reaction to that little wart-growing daughter of the goat herder next door. But she did have some class. But the time passed. In God etiquette, I mean, when was it proper to consume the sacrificial virgin with flames of purity? It was getting dark now. She was a little worried. She started thinking about boils, but she decided to think positive. She would probably just be left tied to the tree till she died of starvation. Oh, or some big wild animal appeared who for other reasons hadn't eaten breakfast either. But unlike her, he could do something about it. But then suddenly a huge hulking dragon with fiery eyes came growling towards her. It stopped, and then a funny little man with strange clothing jumped casually out of its ear. He had a lot of odd-looking tools, though she couldn't read the sign that said, Al's lock and key on the side of the van, 
a.k.a. the huge hulking monster, he made easy work of the lock. Odd, she thought. I never thought the gods looked like that. The strange man led her to the monster's ear and radioed headquarters. Yeah, boss. No. Yeah, same tree. Yep. No. No, not as good as last year's. This one doesn't look like she can cook. They then drove off to the small tribal village on the other side of the valley because apparently crops hadn't been good for them either. They wanted rain too, badly. Maybe two virgins worth this time. And the dust trailed behind his van as he made his way into the sunset to rescue yet another maiden. Hmm, I can see this story didn't age as well. It's a little problematic in that it's a lot of cultural stereotypes kind of mishmashed together very improperly, but thought it was funny. I am not sure where the inspiration came from, but I suspect, I think I heard the song Wider Shade of Pale uh, not too long before that. I was really taken by its kind of creepy, ethereal strangeness, and it made me think about like sacrificial virgins and what it would be like to be an ugly sacrificial virgin waiting for the gods to come and just like realistically what that might be like and then also you know not to have a horrific demise but like to just live in a in a place that uh, was technologically very unadvanced and the thought of like a local like lock and key business just like going around to these villages in the middle of nowhere and you know rescuing virgins tied to trees was also kind of a funny thought to me and so yeah so obviously the song choice is wider shade of pale by procol harem we skip the life and dangle. Hello and welcome back. Uh, as you may know, Bobby and Emily have left me to my own devices for this show, and so I decided to read some short stories that I had written when I was around about 19 years of age. Uh, this would put us around 1996, yeah. And I have, you know, a little bit of commentary also, <laughs> looking back kind of commentary. And so on to the next story. This one is called The Remote Control. Barbara sat on the couch, and the couch pretty much endured it. Really, it didn't have anywhere else to go, so it thought about life, thought about pulling the tags off itself that said it was a federal crime to remove. It thought about the half-eaten doggy treat stashed inside its pull-out bed but mostly it thought about the matching love seat that had been left behind in the move. Barbara had no place to go, nothing to do. She was, coincidentally, watching TV. She was also flossing, but it's a detail not needed for the story, except that Barbara took an active role in fighting tartar and plaque buildup. Click. 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 
She was hurrying her remote towards its looming mechanical death by repeated abuse. The remote was also thinking about the love seat that was left behind, but for different reasons. Bob! She raised her head and emitted the name like a heathen battle cry. Bob! Bob, terminal drudge to the system, appeared, looking slightly bewildered, as he tended to look, due to the fact that his eyes were slightly uneven. Bob! There's nothing on! In a moment, he had grabbed the outstretched remote that she had held, and he sat on the couch. Who sighed? In no organized way, he began to flip through the channels, letting it just rest on a fascinating bit of media, and then flash, static, then flash, the cooking show. Barbara sat up. But what was that? Wait, wasn't that that movie where... After about ten minutes, Bob handed over the remote to Barbara, who sat intrigued, watching TV. As always, the universal truth is, when someone else has the remote, everything looks more interesting than when you had it. Ah, uh, yes. So this story. My mom had gotten remarried not too soon before this, and there was very much a sense of, like, Bambi, man, is in the forest, in that it had been my mom and I for so long, and now there was, like, a guy in the house, and you had to kind of navigate around that. And one of the things that changed was that now there was someone in competition for the remote. <laughs> I had been sole keeper of the remote and what we were viewing, and I was ousted from that role and realized that the minute someone else is watching something and starts flipping through channels, everything suddenly looks much more interesting than when you're holding the remote and flipping through channels. But I decided to write a story about it between like a couple where that's like a service the husband provides is to make television look more interesting. And to go with this, I think Bruce Springsteen's iconic song of 57 channels and nothing on uh, fits this quite perfectly. I bought a bourgeois house in the Hollywood Hills with a trunk load of $100,000 bills. This one is called The Apology. The victim sat on the side of the road. The debris was being collected by officers who sported shirt sleeves barren of commemorative stripes. A law enforcement officer was gathered around her filling out reports and speaking in a strange foreign numeric language in his communications device. I need to see your insurance, ma'am. He said this casually. She looked up at him. The sun was against his back, and his shadow covered half her face, but her one eye that showed looked at him pleadingly. Um, I, I don't have any uh, insurance, uh, officer. The officer leaned back and switched his weight from side to side, the leather on his thick belt squeaking around him like a horde of angry mice. That's against the law, he remarked, just in case. I'm sorry, I just, I didn't think anyone would get, get hurt. I mean, I meant to be careful. They always do. They always do. I'm sorry, but if you don't carry emotional insurance and you choose to enter into a conversation on public land, what you do on your private property, well, that's up to you. But when you go into public, if you enter into a conversation and you willfully choose to argue, you mean to tell me that because you 
aren't carrying insurance. There will be no compensation to the victims. Oh, and there are victims. What do you propose to do about that? He said this straight, with no discernible breath taking in between, and his face was redder than it had been before he started. He glared, armed with the full force of intimidation. The woman looked away and stared at the thick rubber sole of the officer's boot. Um, I could write them a little note? I followed up, because this was written in a letter. Of course it was. Um, I've been trying out a, a new thing called tact. Unfortunately, they were out of instant tact, and I had to go with acquired with practice tact. Yeah, so the context on this one, I had been at a friend's house, and there was like a few guys over, and there was one that I had like kind of hit it off with. Like we had that banter, like there was a tension there of that we probably kind of liked each other. And then I said something incredibly rude and insulting. It really was. And um, I had a hard time, like, with my emotions. Like, when I liked somebody, I was so afraid of, like, rejection and getting hurt that I tended to kind of, like, lash out a little bit, like, as a defense. Yeah, that <laughs> that's effective. Hey, I like you. Let me offend you. It's not effective. Don't do that. And so I got home, and I was like, that was... That was rude. I should apologize. He didn't live near. And so I was like, well, I don't have his address, so I'll write a letter and I'll give it to my friend to give to him. But in the process of doing that, I found out that she also had a crush on him and that they were kind of having some back and forth with that. And since my apology was also like, I mean, I felt really guilty for hurting someone's feelings, but I also was kind of attracted to him which then made it seem like a little bit inappropriate to like try and write him and like make her be the deliverer of it, you know? So I think I didn't end up giving it to him and they didn't end up being a couple and uh, I guess nothing came of it, but that was the context. Um, looking, you know, from this vantage point as, uh, you know, much further into adulthood, like that's not the appropriate way to carry out an apology uh, to like make a story and make a joke like it's diverting but even if it was heartfelt it will never appear to be like truly heartfelt um, I think leading with just like a very sincere apology and then you know maybe the part about tact you know tacked on a tack tacked on at the end um, would have been more appropriate future Jennifer learned things that past Jennifer needed to learn and that was one of them also don't insult boys that you really like because that is not effective I learned that too the song choice for this just seemed so obvious to me in my head which was the apology song by the Decemberists because you know maybe writing a song wasn't the most appropriate uh, sentiment but like it's something that I would think along the lines of, he wrote a song, I wrote a story, I, I feel it. So this is the Apology Song by the Decemberists. I'm really sorry, Stephen, but your bicycle's been stolen. I was watching it for you till you came back in the it was a big day in the city of triethyl citrate, the name of the hairspray compound in which it was famous for. 
the whole town gathered on the edge of the wide cliff that overlooked the ocean. Tourists milled around, stopping at the different booths and children's science experiments that had been set up to draw their attention. Some tourists had their pictures taken with giant lemming ice sculptures. Others bought little generic lemming beanie babies to take home as souvenirs. And some just bought postcards. The local high school cheerleaders stood restless, awaiting their moment to spring into action, while the androgynous person in the Leroy the Lemming mascot suit sweated it out in their costume. Many had crowded around the booth, set up nearest the cliff, where one could register their official racing lemmings, and make bets over whose lemming they thought would plunge over the cliff first. The prize was a vacation for two to the sunny Hawaiian islands. To increase public safety, the mayor had even set up a special camera that would take an official picture of the first lemming who jumped over the ledge. Debates over prior close calls had led to violent outbursts. Suddenly, everyone became silent. The mayor boomed out the traditional cry of, Let there be lemmings! The tourists clapped and cheered as the first little furry claustrophobic creature hurled itself to its miserable death off the sheer cliff and was followed by its more tardy peers accompanied with the faint and distant sounds of splashing yes the crowning event that ended the most anticipated day why did the townspeople find so much joy and delight in the suicidal efforts of these beloved north american creatures well everyone knows the unpleasantries of finding a lemming in your bed at night and rabid lemmings are always a problem in the late spring and once you get lemming in your carpet not even martha stewart can get the smell out the townspeople also had never found a good use for lemmings other than pure entertainment because it takes four lemmings to make a decent hamburger three if you want to make a taco and of course the children sleep better because of those circulated stories like night of the lemming the lemming that wouldn't die lemming massacre and Teenage Mutant Ninja Lemmings, they just don't seem so threatening after Lemming Day. There's like such a soapbox for me <laughs> about this story. When I was in elementary school, we saw the 1958 movie Wild Wilderness, which has like the following depiction and narration of, of Lemmings. And the movie says, a kind of compulsion seizes each tiny rodent, and carried along by an unreasoning hysteria, each falls into a step for a march that will take them to a strange destiny. That destiny is to jump into the ocean. So everything about this scene is incorrect. Lemmings don't regularly migrate. They do not commit mass suicide. All of that was staged. The crew had a turntable to make it seem like they were migrating. And after they had some of those shots, they pushed them into a river. They literally killed the lemmings to make a film saying like, this is what lemmings do. This is how they behave. They don't. <laughs> Who was so stubborn that they were like, well, I don't care. I will make it so. And I will misrepresent like animal behavior, but it was very cruel and I'm upset about it still. So that story, you know, was correct for the knowledge that I was given in school. If you can like suspend your sense of belief or disbelief, 
I do believe that like in a town filled with hysterical rodents would probably find a way to make that a source of entertainment. I mean, towns try to see who can spit the furthest or who can, you know, chuck a cow pie the farthest. So why not like a lemming race? Why not bet on them? Like, I completely believe that that's something that people would do if, you know, given the opportunity. My song for this one was by the Divine Comedy, and it is called Count Grassi's Passage Over Piedmont. Throw it away. We need more height. Toss it all over the side. This next story is a bit of a recreation because I remember writing it, but I cannot find it. So I wrote down the details that I remembered and embellished the ones that I did not. And we have a story, but it's not authentically written by my 19-year-old self, only conceived of by my 19-year-old self. Bill's new office smelled like rubber and those little scented pine trees that hang from rearview mirrors, which was an anomaly because neither of those two things had ever been in Bill's office. The advent of the office, rubbery and pine-scented as it was, was a promotion for Bill, and his, what could best be described as a former work crony, Randall, had handed Bill a resplendent potted African violet, joking, Don't forget about the little man from your new penthouse, ha <laughs> ha. They had both applied for the same position, but Bill had been hired, solely due to the fact of Randall's unfortunate decision to wear an orange sweater vest to his interview, which reminded the CEO of her despised ex-husband, who also possessed a similar taste in sweater vests. She had no such associated trauma related to Bill's choice of olive green. Bill did not understand plant care or general house plantiness. He had carelessly thrown away the small plastic sign that included the instructions for watering and lighting for his new plant friend. It began to look wilted and rather bedraggled. It was surviving on the sole generosity of the nighttime janitorial staff, to wit, Margaret, who did know about plants and had an affinity for African violets. It was an extraordinarily ordinary day when the earthquake hit. Bill remembered to clamber under his desk. He could feel the tremors of the earth. He watched as the lights went out, and the falling rafters and ceiling panels blotted out the sun. He was alone. He was unharmed, but he was very scared. He tried to push his way out from under his desk, but it seemed solidly blocked. His hand encountered the moist soil and fuzzy leaves of his African violet plant friend. Its pot had been plastic, and it had been largely unharmed in its fall. In a state of shock, Bill uprighted the planter and carefully scooped up as much soil as possible back into it. By day three, he had named his plant friend Cecilia, after the Simon and Garfunkel song. He would sing it while rubbing the plant's fuzzy leaves and hoping for rescue. And that is how the rescue team found him. Under his desk, clutching a potted plant, singing Simon and Garfunkel songs. He insisted that they rescue Cecilia before him, and his pictures made the paper, The Man Who Survived, and in his arms he clutched a very forlorn 
African violet. He was treated for dehydration and released. As he recovered, he researched African violets and began to lavish Cecilia with the best plant care he could afford. That did not stop Cecilia from molting, turning yellow, and expiring. Such is the fickle nature of houseplants. Bill was devastated. Sometimes he would go to the local nursery and look at the section for African violets, wondering if he could ever love again, which is how he caught the eye of a similarly-minded woman named Margaret, who shared his interest of St. Paulia, a section within the Streptocarpus subgenus Streptocarpella, also known as the African violet. I had written this because my relationship with houseplants was always rather tenuous, and sometimes it felt like they were just being mean. Uh, obviously it wasn't my fault, I didn't like over or underwater them or neglect them in any way. It was purely out of spite that I couldn't keep a houseplant alive, and I just kind of had worked off of that idea and thought it was funny. I really don't want to play the song Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel because I played it while writing this and now I don't want to hear it anymore. Um, let's see if I can find an alternate. Okay, have I got one for you? <laughs> this is by a band called The Vamps and it's Oh Cecilia and it's featuring Sean Mendez. Okay, so hypothetically, if perhaps you're, you know, an aging musician, perhaps don't really feel up to touring, or you're just disillusioned with that whole performance life, yet you still have some bills to pay, and you are approached by a, a boy band for the uh, musical rights of a song that you wrote, and you could generate a tidy sum uh, in royalties, it might seem rather appealing. And you, in fact, might sign over the rights to that song. And hypothetically, <laughs> I <laughs> wonder if that happened in this case. Perhaps. All right, back to it. And the final story. Again, a recreation of something I remember writing in the past but was unable to find. Every day Dolores peered into her ultra-super-lighted, magnified mirror with tweezers at the ready, intent on finding and decimating any unwanted follicular intruders. Dolores had three moles upon her face. They were very small and not readily noticeable, except for the fact that each mole grew a very robust, very dark, very thick hair. These three hairs had been a particular bane of her existence, and she hunted for and plucked out her enemy with laser focus. During her first blind date with Bradley, he was unaware of these three sentinels. During their courtship and engagement and marriage, he remained blissfully unaware of these unsightly facial intruders. Sometimes he caught glimpses of a small black hair near a pair of tweezers where justice had been swiftly rendered but he did not think much on it. Till the day they appeared. 
they appeared and stayed. Each day they seemed to grow longer, to a point where he wondered how it was possible. He knew Dolores was disillusioned in their marriage, after opining that she wished he was married to her and not his career. Bradley began to fixate on those three hairs, till it became difficult to peck his wife on the cheek as he was leaving for work. He began having nightmares about her face sprouting a full beard, and soon he was unable to make eye contact and began dimming the lights of the rooms he entered. Those three hairs! Those three hairs! This did not help the state of their marriage. One day, when he wasn't paying attention, he looked up and noticed that his wife looked a bit more colorful, a bit more put together, and hesitantly, he looked her fully in the face, and the hairs were gone. Gone. Gone like they'd never been. When she casually mentioned that she was going out for brunch with a friend, he sighed wearily after she left and searched for numbers of a good divorce lawyer. Some things you just know. This one, I just remember seeing like an older lady with uh, just a huge mole hair and she was married and I thought why doesn't her husband like point that out because it's like really big and then I thought maybe he did maybe she just leaves it there out of like spite like she's mad at him she grows out her mole hair she's like they're on good terms she plucks it what if you could tell what someone kind of was like up to or how they were feeling by whether or not they you know plucked a mole hair or not and that's where this story came from. The song that I picked to go along with this was Michael Kiwanuka's Cold Little Heart. Because, you know, maybe Bradley could have communicated his feelings and been more present in his relationship. And maybe Dolores could have stopped being passive-aggressive and had heart-to-heart. Never really know what goes on in a marriage unless you're in the marriage. So here's our song. Hey everybody, thank you so very much for listening and taking that strange journey with me back to my 19-year-old brain. I was reading just a lot of Douglas Adams, William Goldman's The Princess Bride, I think some Terry Pratchett at that time too, and you can definitely tell the influence that it had on how I was phrasing things and how some of my punchlines landed if in fact they could be distinguished as punchlines anyway next week Emily and Bobby will be back things will be restored to the normalcy if that can be applied to dream infringement Uh, and next up after our show is Leo and seriously he's the man with the voice your eardrums love him well my eardrums love him and I mean I can't speak for what your eardrums are thinking but mine are like yes please Leah's voice awesome and he's up next for two hours with high tech soul and you can check out the entire KSKQ lineup at kskq.org and for us we upload our shows on SoundCloud uh, but also that will show up on iTunes and a lot of podcast apps so just search us out dream infringement if you want to see the faces and the shenanigans that we are up to behind the scenes
Yes. Anyway, Bobby, he loves you. Emily feels platonically inclined, and I have commitment issues, but I really am trying to work through it. We'll see you next week. No, we won't. That's a lie. You'll hear us next week if you tune in. And that's the truth.